0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we look back on 70 years since the groundbreaking novel 1984. Things like the ubiquity of screens,
1: I mean, whether he meant it or not, he got that one absolutely bang on. When I was first reading 1984, flat screens didn't exist. Then you have the ubiquity of CCTV as well, the fact that we're all being monitored.
0: We hear about the blue-placked home where its author, George Orwell,
1: lived... Actually, he was only in Lawford Road for about six months, in in 1935 into 1936, and that's where the Greater London Council chose to honour him in 1980, and that's the plaque that forms part of the, the English Heritage
0: Scheme. And we'll explain how you can follow your own blue plaque journey across London. All that to come very shortly with our blue plaques expert, Howard Spencer. But first, let's get a sneak peek at forthcoming episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. There is so much that you can draw
1: from what people are wearing at any particular period in time. Unpicking these codes, unpicking different layers of dress history can really offer great insight into the past.
0: Coastal areas have been popular since way back in history. Even in Roman times, the wealthy used to go down to the coast. And we know that Mercia Island in Essex was a sort of destination for wealthy Romans living in Colchester. What then gets very strange is that thousands of years into the agricultural process, in some areas, buildings start to become round. I do think there's something meaningful behind it, but I am not going to begin to suggest what that might be. Make sure you subscribe to find out more in the next few weeks. Now, have you ever been in London and seen a blue plaque on a building telling you that somebody famous once lived there? Well, started in 1866... The London Blue Plaque scheme is now run by English Heritage. And of those honorees is the writer and novelist George Orwell, who lived at a number of addresses. June 2019 marks 70 years since his groundbreaking novel 1984 was published. Written back in the early stages of the Cold War, it's since left an indelible mark on our culture, spawning phrases like Big Brother and inspiring other writers and filmmakers to expand on his dystopian visions. Well, joining me to talk about Orwell, the plaque, and one of his former homes, is English Heritage's Senior Historian for Blue Plaques, Howard Spencer. Howard, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Charles. Now, before we get into Orwell himself, could you first tell us a bit more about what a Blue Plaques historian actually does? Sure, yes. Well, I I either manage or I
1: actually do the research that underpins the Blue Plaques scheme. The way it works is we have a two-stage research process and... The scheme really works on public nominations. So they come in and there's an initial stage where we look at a particular suggestion and there is some research done on its essential viability. If it's about a figure, it's really about working out where that figure sits in the history of of what they were actually doing in the discipline in which they worked, the area in which they worked, trying to work out just how important they were, whether they really moved the game on, as it were. Uh, And then there's a second stage of research, which is all about the addresses, because we like to try and pick the very best address we can for somebody within the Greater London area, the most significant in their life and work. The other thing I do is work on presentation, curation of existing plaques. Most notably, I edited the book, The English Heritage Guide to London's Blue Plaques, which came out in 2016. So how long have you been doing this job for? Um, I've been doing it for 14 years. I've also been doing other things too during that time, like, for example, I did listings reports and more recently I've been working on signage schemes at various English heritage properties. The interpretation of signage is in a constant state of refreshment, we're always looking at ways to improve the way we do this, so I've had some editorial input into that and that's been really good and really interesting to work on.
0: I suspect you're quite useful at a pub quiz as well, aren't you? It has been said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Especially ones in London. Now let's talk a little bit about when English heritage took over the London Blue Plaque Scheme. Um, I know it started in the 1860s. Uh, When did it take over and why?
1: It took over in 1986 and that was following the abolition of the Greater London Council. So before that the Greater London Council, or GLC, had run it since 1965. Before that it was the London County Council, which was a rather smaller area. London was then deemed to be a rather smaller geographical entity than it is today. And the organisation that started it off was the Society of Arts, which we know today as the Royal Society of Arts, and they, as you say, kicked it off way back in 1866. So we believe that the scheme is the oldest of its kind in the world, the oldest attempt to actually record links between people and buildings in a systematic way.
0: Now, focusing on the man Orwell himself, Howard, one of the most famous things about Orwell is the fact that he didn't write under his real name.
1: That's right. George Orwell was his pen name. His real name was Eric Blair. Some mystery about where the pen name came from, um, Orwell is the river in Suffolk that goes through Ipswich. And it's thought that he may have come across it while he was on one of his many tramping journeys through England, because his own links were not particularly with Suffolk. They were with Henley-on-Thames, which was where he grew up, and prior to that he lived in India. So a slight mystery there. As to why he chose a pen name, I guess it's similar to many authors there was a slight sense of wishing to distance himself from the work in case it wasn't very good or didn't go down well and i believe too in his case there was there was some sense of wishing to not embarrass his family which is pretty extraordinary when you consider how famous and how well it turned out for him but uh, i guess all writers are are tortured with a certain amount of self-doubt and you can see that in his decision to use a pseudonym for his work he actually ended up having two memorial services when he died one as eric blair his family, and one as George Orwell, and I think that's that's an interesting point because I think a lot of people who are in the public eye do find it helpful to be able to draw a distinction between their private life and their life as a, a sort of a famous person. This is quite a, an observable
0: phenomenon. That's really interesting. But you talked about that fame there. What what are his most famous works? I mean, obviously we're talking about 1984 mainly today. But well, yes, the the, the one that really got him into the limelight was Animal Farm,
1: which came out in 1944. There are still people who would say that he was actually better as a political essayist than he was as a novelist and I suppose in that sense I give honourable mentions to works like The Lion and the Unicorn which is a book about British politics and the class system and so on written just around the time that World War II broke out and of course another, another bit of reportage that he's very famous for is Homage to Catalonia which describes his experience fighting in the Spanish Civil War.
0: Yeah, he was very politically active as well as being an active writer, wasn't he? And did a lot of travelling.
1: That's right, Yes. Yeah, so I think the, the other point that influenced him, of course, was, was being born in India, in, in British India as it then was, and working as a, as a policeman in Burma, which was his, his early career and, and the life that his father really wanted for him. And I think that influenced him a lot in his opposition to British imperialism and that cast his kind of, his left-wing politics his sense of of being against the establishment, which he stuck with all his life in various ways. I mean, as we know, he also became very critical of the left wing establishment.
0: Yeah, it's interesting is, that, we'll isn't it, to. that he sort of um, embraced that side, but then sort of started deviating off it a little bit.
1: That's right. Well, I think he he just ne- he never he was never sort of comfortable with the, the sort of totalitarian uh, or, or or command and control aspects of of left wing politics, and you can see that in the choice. Of organisation that he that he fought for in in the Spanish Civil War because he he fought for the P O U M who were were a sort of dissident left wing group they were not attached to the Communist Party and he actually got hunted down by communists while he was in Spain these people that were remember were notionally fighting on the same side against Franco uh, and in fact they weren't really.
0: Let's talk a little bit about why his novels particularly Animal Animal Farm and 1984 are so attention grabbing. What what are the themes that really stick out? For you, as a historian, I think the the thing about Animal Farm in 1984
1: is that they've had a sort of continued resonance. And when I think about when I first was sort of coming to consciousness, I was in the Cold War, and of course the parallels were very obvious then. I mean, particularly we're talking about 1984, which we mostly are today. Then you have these kind of this, this situation of kind of constant war between these blocks and this propaganda. I mean, I, I guess more recently you could draw draw parallels and say, well, you know, he t- he talks about Oceania and, and Eurasia, and, there, and there's this kind of notional split between Britain and the rest of Europe. I'll say no more on that subject <laughs> for now. There's also the apparent sort of predictive value of the, of the novel, which of course is, is a considerable bone of contention because it wasn't really written as such. But things like the ubiquity of screens, I mean, whether he meant it or not, He got that one absolutely bang on. Of course, you know, um, when I was first reading 1984, flat screens didn't exist, except on the wall of Winston Smith's apartment, but now they do. Then you have the ubiquity of CCTV as well, the fact that we're all being monitored. So there are all these resonances that continue, and they change inevitably over time.
0: I think the thing that chimes with me, actually, is the sort of revisionist history kind of aspect, where... It's a bit like The Man in the High Castle, which people might be familiar with if they've got to Amazon Prime, that TV series where World War II has been won by the Axis powers. Suddenly, America's been divided into the Japanese Pacific states and then the greater Nazi Reich. And then there's a whole story that goes out from that idea. And I think that revisionist history is is always going to be very very attractive
1: well yes I suppose you could say that that, that Orwell was trying to write something something that was in a way the opposite of that because it was designed to be swifty and satire of of what was 1984 was written in 1948 and, and published in 1949 which is the 70th anniversary of the publication rather than the writing that we're talking about here so really he was, he was writing more or less about his own time rather than, than it being a sort of predictive work. So that's a slight difference to, to what you're um, talking about in terms of the sort of counterfactual historical stuff but all of it has a, all of it has a great resonance and while it wasn't seems it wasn't directly intended by him to write write about 1984 that's certainly how people read it and i remember because you know i, I turned 18 in 1984 and i can remember all the uh, it excited you know a great deal of comment and sort of a dread anticipation of that year actually ticking over i mean in, in a way he he successfully blighted that year because that's what people thought of uh, it was it was such a powerful association
0: now, where did he write it? It wasn't at the property in London where we have the blue plaque, is it? No, it wasn't.
1: He he, he wrote most of it on, on the Hebridean island of Jura. Uh, he stayed Something's at the That's basically. right. Yes, um, he stayed at the northern tip of the island in a remote cottage. The notion being it would give him the time and the peace to finish the book, which he'd started actually while living in Canonbury Square in Islington. He'd done some of the initial spade work there. That building is marked by a plaque, but it's not the English Heritage one, it's marked by an Islington plaque. There are a number of, of plaque schemes in, in London, as is well known, and, and, and Orwell is, is commemorated by several of them. So yeah, he went to Jura partly to get the sort of peace and quiet he needed to write, and also because he was already suffering badly from tuberculosis. I mean, 1984, did actually turn out to be his last book, because he died in the early days of 1950. So he went partly to Scotland in, in search of better health. Staying in a in a in a house that was absolutely running with damp, which can't see that that was really going to help him much, but it was considered to be a, a good idea for him to do that.
0: Now, does the book contain any references to any London landmarks we might recognise today? And do you know? if there are any which inspired him in that book.
1: The best-known one was, was Senate House, the London University Senate House in Bloomsbury, which really was, in World War II, used for Churchill's Ministry of Information, which, of course, was his model for the Ministry of Truth. Again, back to what I was saying about it being a satire of his own times rather than a, a sort of dystopian science fiction future-type novel. His wife actually worked in the Ministry of Information and Orwell himself worked for the BBC, so there was a certain amount of direct knowledge going into this portrayal of his hero, Winston Smith, working on the uh, retrospective alteration of newspapers, airbrushing history.
0: Is that a building that a lot of people would recognise? It's a large
1: white tower block built in the 1930s, and it does have a rather forbidding aspect to it. It's like a smaller version of the Moscow State University building, which is, you know, really a very Stalinist structure. So you know, one can see why he why he chose it. It does have a lot of resonance even today.
0: Let's talk a bit a bit about how you view the work as a historian. What is it that you find perhaps most interesting or chilling about? what happens in 1984
1: we touched on this earlier but I think it is the key resonance today is that the airbrushing of history the rewriting of history I believe that recently the book again topped the bestseller lists and it was after President Trump's spokesman Kellyanne Conway first uttered the words alternative facts you know that had a lot of people reaching for their copies of 1984 and I guess the scary thing is now is that it's, it's now much easier for this kind of manipulation to go on i mean we now have technology that enables people to produce youtube videos and so on that actually literally make politicians say things that they didn't say that's taking it several degrees further than rubbing people out of photos which of course as we know was going on in 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 stalinist russia that's
0: the side of it that
1: chills me the most
0: Looking at his plaque, though, um, how long did it take for him to get honoured with a blue plaque?
1: Well, he died in 1950, and he didn't get the plaque till 1980. There's, there's normally a 20-year rule before somebody can be suggested, and it first came up in the late 60s. There was an MP for Hampstead, Ben Whittaker, was a great fan of Orwell's, and he put him forward for a plaque, and he actually wanted it to go on the bookshop in Hampstead, where Orwell had worked for a long time in the, in, in the mid-1930s while he'd been struggling to make his mark as a, as a writer. For whatever reason, I'm not quite sure why, the GLC decided that it couldn't go there. So why was so, his former
0: flat then in Kentish Town chosen to bear the blue plaque, do, would you say?
1: We have a file on this and it's, it's silent on the exact reason, but I suspect it was because he lived in a number of different addresses in the general Hampstead and the modern borough of Camden he also lived on Parliament Hill he lived in Kilburn he lived in Warwick Mansions which is very close to number one South End Road which is where the bookshop was so there were a number of connections to Hampstead all lasting throughout the 1930s and I think that's probably why that was chosen if you were going to pin him where he actually did his most famous work the address I mentioned earlier in Canterbury Square in Islington would actually have been arguably a better choice. And he was actually there for rather longer. He was there for several years. He was there for two or three years in Canonbury Square, whereas actually he was only in Lawford Road for about um, six months in, in 1935 into 19. 19- 36 Mm, and that's Norfolk road Um, kentish town that's right that's right and that's where the greater london council chose to honor him in in 1980 and that's the plaque that forms part of the the english heritage scheme there are also plaques at the addresses in parliament hill kilburn one put up by the heath and hampstead society who do a lot of good work in that area in terms of the degree to which he's honored in london i think orwell's probably now um Uh, second only to Charles Dickens, who of course is famously has lots and lots of of plaques in London and also uh, elsewhere in the country, um, to the point where somebody in Broadstairs has actually put up a plaque that says Charles Dickens did not live here.
0: Um. (laughs) I've seen a few uh, funny ones as well for actors as well. I think um, there was one time Ian McKellen was drinking at a cafe, I can't remember where, and it says, something like Ian McKellen had a coffee here once Um, (laughs) well I think there's
1: a bit of satire there because some some plaques it has to be said are somewhat tenuous i like to think that most of the ones that, that are part of the english heritage scheme do try to represent links that are actually a bit more meaningful than that but there are, there are one or two where you think really <laughs> um but it's interesting that Orwell does have so many that so many organizations have thought it was thought it was worth doing and in fact i mentioned the Hampstead MP Ben Whittaker when he was initially sort of knocked back and told that Orwell hadn't 20 years hadn't elapsed since Orwell had died, therefore they couldn't do anything. He actually got together a group of enthusiasts and they put this plaque on Number One South End Road where the bookshop was, where he'd worked. It's called Book Lovers Corner. And that plaque's still there and it features a a relief portrait. And this was actually sort of put up by subscribers. So I think all this does indicate that there, there is a great deal of interest ongoing interest in all his work and that it continues to have a lot of resonance for people
0: almost like every part of north or northwest london nw3 sort of area seems to sort of lay claim to him yes
1: everybody wants a piece of him in a way but there are some interesting stories that come out of the time that he spent at the address in in lawford road which show that his status as a struggling writer i suppose i mean he he shared it with two other writers called rainer heppenstahl and michael sayers who he he got on with pretty well most of the time, except when he didn't. I think anyone who's, who's ever shared a flat with anybody would kind of recognise some of the uh, the stories, which is apparently Heppenstile didn't do his share of the washing up terribly much. And there was one occasion when Heppenstile came home drunk and Orwell had to uh, reprimand him for disturbing the neighbours and, 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 all, and all the rest of it. And there's also stories that the Orwell's um, mechanical typewriter disturbed the people living downstairs and they were quite pleased to see the back of him when he left. And when he left, it was to go on the uh, trip north, which he then wrote up as the road to Wigan Pier. So how many blue plaques does English Heritage oversee in London then? This year, we're going to go over the 950 mark. That's right across Greater London, so that's sort of Barnet right down to Croydon and um, you know barking right across to the farthest uh, reaches of, of, of Hounslow and, and into, into West London. It's a, lot, it's a lot of plaques these days, but there's, there's obviously um, plenty of room still for expansion, plenty of houses still to be uh, commemorated, plenty of interesting associations that we can mark.
0: Well, I used to work in London, so we'll see if I get one at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so are there any famous names that you're working on at the moment or considering that you might be able to tell us about right now? Uh, it's a little difficult to talk about cases in
1: progress because I have to be careful about managing expectations. Uh, we have announced this year we're, we're putting up several plaques to women we have had an appeal recently to try and up the number of nominations we get for women and that's been very successful and that's starting to bear fruit so for example the the journalist Martha Gellhorn will be getting a plaque this year and then Angela Carter another writer to to pick up on the Orwell thread magic realist writer uh, will be getting a plaque down at her old home in in Clapham later in the year Um, so that's that's all, all, all the good stuff to look forward to
0: Now, for younger listeners who might be interested in uh, making their mark and getting a blue plaque in London, what do you have to do to get one? Apart from being nominated, obviously, which we covered. Well, you need to be um, deceased for 20
1: years, so I'd advise people not to do that. I guess the main criteria that the panel used to measure the ongoing historical significance of people is that they have made a positive contribution to human welfare and happiness. So you have to do something that fits that and then you may be considered in the fullness of time.
0: So that's the main criterion?
1: That's the most important. There are several. Well, that's that's the kind of key one. That, I guess, emphasises that it's not like, for example, being included in a publication like the Dictionary of National Biography, where you, you could just be notorious and get in there. It's not about being notorious. It's about something a bit more positive than that. It's about having you know moved the game on in the particular area that you work in, or having written something that is truly resonant in the way that 1984 Animal Farm is.
0: And of course you don't have to be an author, you could be an inventor, you could be a scientist, you could be an astronaut, you could be a politician, anything. That's
1: right, I mean the the scheme does cover all areas of human achievement. It's really very broad and we're consciously uh, trying to expand that as we go along.
0: And what's the best way of going on a blue plaque tour? Is it possible to visit all these 950? It might take you a while but... uh, well, there is a chap who lives in
1: Walthamstow who's actually done it, and he did feature in the uh, the English Heritage Members magazine last year, and big respect to him, not least because he took a load of very helpful photographs for us. More easily, you c- you can trace your own tours using the English Heritage Blue Plaques app, which is free to download, and there's also the book, The English Heritage Guide to London's Blue Plaques, which gives you a little bit more information about each of the plaques.
0: And finally, you're a Blue Plaques historian, but... Do you ever think you'll get a blue plaque yourself one day for all the work that you've been putting in over these last <laughs> sort of, you know, fourteen years or so?
1: I, I would doubt that. Although there was uh, there was a chap in the early twentieth century who ran the um, the scheme for the london county council called lawrence gom who was also what was then called chief clerk of the council would translate today as more like chief executive so he was actually quite a a considerable figure and he he got one uh, not just for his running of the plaque scheme but also for the work he did on london history and folklore but i wouldn't really be aspire to be joining him it's not something i think about very much
0: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more information about London's Blue Plaques and the Blue Plaques mobile app, just head to the English Heritage website. We're back next week. Until then, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe and see you next time.